0: Can Florida get all of its electricity from renewable sources by the year 2050?
1: The only statewide elected Democrat unveiled new energy goals this week.
2: If we don't work on it and don't try and don't put these priorities, then it's never going to happen.
0: Plus, why did the state reject dozens of math textbooks? This is the Florida Roundup from
1: WLRN Public Media in Miami and WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville. I'm Tom Hudson.
0: And I'm Melissa Ross. Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Fried announces a new timeline hoping to wean the state off fossil fuels, but she can't enforce those goals. Then later, the Department of Education rejects more than 50 math books they say don't meet state standards and include what they call prohibited topics.
1: Join the conversation 305-995-1800. Welcome to the Florida Roundup here on Florida Public Radio. Thanks for listening this week. I'm Tom Hudson in
0: Miami. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And happy Earth Day. It's a timely day to focus on our top story. For the first time, the Sunshine State has specific goals and even a timeline to get all of its electricity from renewable sources. Now, the target is to have all electricity in Florida be generated from renewables by the year 2050. Today, most of the power in Florida comes from burning natural gas, and less than 5% comes from solar energy here in our sunshine state. So we begin the hour with a closer look at these renewable energy goals. Here's the question. Can Florida make the switch to all renewables within the next 30 years? How interested are you in the way your power is generated? How important is this topic to you? Give us a call. We'll get to your calls in a little bit. The number to join us, 305-995-1800, or tweet us at Florida Roundup.
1: Calls and tweets on their way. The effort by the state to set these renewable energy goals comes from two state laws dating back more than a decade. Young climate activists here in Florida petitioned Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed to come up with these targets, which she released on Thursday. We spoke with the commissioner this week. Commissioner Freed, welcome back to Florida Public Radio and thanks for your time. Why did it take a decade or longer after the state laws were written up to require these rules for the goals for renewable energy to be drawn up?
2: First and foremost, you know, I completely agree that, you know, there's been no action, been no movement. Um, And so we are sitting in a situation where we tried to make some significant changes within the legislature. These are, you know, existing statutory authority. We set the guidelines, but this public service commission has to enforce. And that's going to be a a problem. So while we are definitely working on these rulemaking, it is just goals. Uh, Unfortunately, the enforcement comes from the public service commission.
1: Let's talk about the goals that are in the rule, uh, particularly regarding the goal of eventually weaning off of natural gas, which is the significant fuel that's used to generate electricity here in Florida. Florida Power and Light, FPL, has about 70% of its electricity today generated by burning natural gas, about 1% coming from renewable energy. The rule that you came out with this week has 40% of electricity generated by renewable energy within the next seven and a half years. So how practical is that benchmark?
2: Look, you know, if we don't work on it and don't try and don't put these priorities, then it's never going to happen. You know, it's going to take bold leadership from myself and from my department and to actually be moving the needle on these issues. If we don't talk about it, if we don't put these goals into place, then we're never going to get there.
1: How do you think the industry needs to work? to change, given the population growth and demand growth for electrical generation in just the next seven and a half years to reach that threshold, that goal of 40 percent of electricity in Florida generated from renewable sources?
2: Look what's happening across the world right now. You know, we're, we're seeing the international community dependence on, on foreign oil and We need to make sure that we are creating a domestic supply chain, that we are looking at ways for all of us to get off of of these other forms of energy and and gas. And so we need to be working on this. And so it is something that has to be worked on together. And and certainly the the utilities companies have a big part to, to play in this. And the demand of the people, you know, more and more people are understanding the needs to, whether it's electric vehicles or biofuels or other types of electricity, that can generate the power that's necessary. It is gonna take some time for sure, but we've lost decades and decades. And if we don't start now, at least having these very aggressive goals, we're never gonna get there.
1: The natural gas that Florida utility generators use is American natural gas, it's not foreign natural gas. And the electric utility companies have invested heavily in natural gas pipelines to bring in natural gas from elsewhere in the United States. How do you respond to the industry about those significant infrastructure investments that they have in Florida to handle the incumbent energy sources, not necessarily the renewable energy sources that these goals are going to require?
2: Look, you know, certainly the utilities companies have, have moved forward. Um, you see all of the solar panels. You've seen the investments in the infrastructure. The fact that they've moved forward, it, they should be applauded for at least moving in the right direction. But is it enough? The answer is going to be No. Um, and this is why you need to have these types of, of rulemaking changes, legislative changes, and also working with, you know, knowing that how much money it's going to take to actually create this infrastructure. That's why a lot of money is going to be coming down from Washington, D.C. on infrastructure and on renewables and on opportunities to create um, a more green space for, for our country.
1: Commissioner, uh, the state law also requires your department to identify what it calls barriers to greater use of solar energy systems in florida this spring lawmakers approved a bill that would have people using solar power sell that extra power to electric companies at a discounted rate is that a barrier to greater use of solar energy under florida law
2: look we have a lot of work to do with our solar laws Um, We need to be creating back incentives for homeowners to want to put solar panels onto their house There used to be a program. And we have to look at energy efficiency for our low-income communities. And so we need to be looking at the totality of all of our solar programs and our energy programs and finding ways to make sure that it's more cost-effective, to make sure that we are taking care of communities across our state. Um, And unfortunately, the, the... you know, a lot of our utilities companies have had too much power um, and influence in Tallahassee and in Washington, D.C. And this net metering bill is considered a, a barrier.
1: So you have the appetite to identify state law as barriers to solar power, solar energy in Florida. Yes, Commissioner, transportation, cars and trucks are not included in the goals. They weren't included in the state law requiring your department to write these goals. Yet transportation is a significant contributor to carbon emissions. Is it wise to exclude transportation from any renewable energy goals in the state of Florida?
2: I think we need to get there, too. Um, because, look, you know, and I'm seeing this from the agriculture perspective, too, that when you see an increase in, in gas prices, you know, that trickles down to the consumer. Uh, and that's not even talking about the environment. That's talking about the, the, the kitchen table conversations about the economy and being able to provide food on their plates. And you go into the greater conversation about the environment and going on to, you know, what are some of the larger contributors to, so, as you say, you know, the emissions. um, It is cars and trucks and the trucking industry, but we need to make sure that we find ways to create that balance, that we are including transportation, but also making sure that we are doing so in a way that is also not going to trickle down and hurt the consumer at the end of the day.
1: If Florida moves toward these goals in the next seven and a half years, toward 40% of electricity generated through renewable resources, which includes nuclear, what is the impact going to be on the price of power for Floridians.
2: Florida families are hurting. You know, middle class and lower class families all across our state and across our country right now are, are hurting, whether that's because of inflation or because of the pandemic. And so the last thing that we need to be doing right now is putting an additional burden on our you know, families and to our you know, hard working blue collar workers out here that are just trying to make a living and keep a roof over their heads and uh, keep the power on and to make sure there's food on their plates. So it's creating that balance to make sure that the cost uh, of going green does not come down to the consumer and actually hurt our middle class and our lower class families um, across the state. And that's a balancing act that's going to have to play in utilizing government resources um, to offset some of those additional costs for the, for the front end.
1: On the enforcement side, Commissioner, it is not your agency's responsibility to enforce these goals over the next uh, several decades. It comes down to the Public Service Commission and uh, and its ability to enforce these goals. What would you like to see the Public Service Commission do toward enforcement?
2: <laughs> well, let's see. So there's a lot of things that needs to happen when it comes to the makeup of the PSC, because the PSC has not been a commission that is actually doing its job public service. Uh, And they certainly have not been doing that. Uh, And so the Public Service Commission needs to be revamped, needs to be looking at what the internal process is for appointments or go to an actual election of the PSC members. I have not seen, and I could be definitely very wrong on this, I have not seen the PSC ever go after and and do any type of enforcement uh, of any of these issues.
1: Now that your department has released these Renewable Energy Goals how do you describe your level of confidence of enforcement and the ability for electric utilities to meet these goals?
2: You know, unfortunately um, I don't have a lot. Um, so I, I don't have a lot of hope under the given circumstances, but that's why we're having this conversation. That's why we're putting it out there. That's why we're elevating it so that more and more people understand that there are good elected officials out here that are trying to do well and trying to help the people of our state. And so we need the public to understand that, be holding their elected officials more accountable. And if they're not accountable, get them out of office.
1: Agriculture and Consumer Services Commissioner Nikki Freed with us. Commissioner, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on today.
0: So here's the question. How will these ambitious renewable energy goals be enforced? For some thoughts on that, we spoke with J.R. Kelly. Kelly, an attorney, represented consumer utility issues as the state's public counsel until last year. J.R. Kelly, good to be with you. Thanks for joining the Florida Roundup.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Nikki Freed, in announcing 100% renewable goals for the state of Florida by the year 2050, of course, is setting a goal. Her office wouldn't have enforcement capability that would fall to the Public Service Commission. What confidence do you have that this commission will follow through and enforce these aggressive goals?
3: I don't know how aggressive they might be. It's 100% renewable is a very lofty goal. I mean, you have to be realistic in that. Florida is definitely moving in the right direction with a lot more solar, uh, both rooftop and um, utility built solar. Uh, And there's other ways that they are trying to be more green. However, you have to look realistically at the limitations that Florida has. We don't have any wind. Uh, I mean, that's just a fact. Um, and I don't think you could just generate enough solar to become 100% dependent on solar because the bottom line, customers, uh, whether it be a commercial business or a residential person, uh, they want the lights to come on when they turn on the switch. Uh, I just don't know how realistic a 100% goal, however You never know what breakthroughs and technologies could come about in the next 5, 10, 15 years that could make that more of a reality. But right now, I I just don't know if that is a real realistic uh, goal.
0: Certainly, when you talk to climate scientists, they talk a lot about the year 2050 getting to net zero, as they say decarbonizing rapidly to ward off the worst impacts of climate change. And here in Florida, of course, we're particularly vulnerable with all of our seacoast. As the technologies advance, uh, enforcing these goals will be challenging in any case. But do you think the Public Service Commission is independent enough from major energy providers to play that kind of enforcement role to make sure we're getting to net zero? Being
3: 100% renewable or being a net net neutral carbon or or two different things, mm-hmm. being to get to 100% net carbon would be a little bit easier goal than 100% renewable. You know, I think that the Public Service Commission would be open-minded uh, depending on, uh, number one, what is the cost that would be imposed upon customers. That's a balancing act that you have to do is you can have a lot of great ideas and so forth, but the bottom line, if it, if all of a sudden it doubles a customer's bills to go 100% net neutral carbon wise, you've got to balance that and whether or not a customer or a consumer could afford that. But I think that if you have more breakthroughs in technology, and I do expect over the next five to ten years, we're gonna continue to see many kinds of new technologies and new devices and everything coming into play. I think that the the public service commission would be open minded. A lot's gonna depend on whether or not these would be things that individual customers could do, or is it something that the utilities themselves would be able to implement. And if the utilities could implement them, then I think that the Public Service Commission will probably be more open-minded to those kinds of um, new technologies and new devices.
0: Honest question, though. You know, there's a perception, certainly, that utilities, even though they are investing more heavily in renewables, that they are sometimes seen as an impediment to getting to these renewable energy goals and that they do exercise undue influence over the status quo as it stands right now and so what about that factor in the in this whole process
3: well there there's no doubt that the the investor owned utilities in the state wield a tremendous amount of lobbying power i mean that's just a fact They'll be looking at their bottom lines as to what they will support and what they won't support. Certainly, based upon their political power, uh, that will go a long way to influencing both the legislature and the governor and the Public Service Commission as to what they will approve or not approve. I mean, that, that's a that's a known fact.
0: And getting back to the PSC, will the Public Service Commission here in Florida need to change its framework in terms of embracing these kinds of goals. What types of adaptations or new rules, I guess you could say, might this body be looking at in the future as more and more states try to get to, if not 100% renewable, at least somewhere in that neighborhood?
3: I absolutely think that it'll, it'll require new ways of um, meeting the challenges uh, of how we used to meet them five, or how the commission used to meet them five, ten, fifteen years ago. You're you're absolutely right about that. A lot will depend on the new technologies and how they will affect the cost of certain things. I mean, if you look back ten years ago, take solar for example, solar was very expensive. Uh, and you look now, fast forward to today, and it is drastically reduced in price. And, and the bottom line is that's because the technologies and the manufacturing of all those components and solar farms has just evolved incredibly to be so much cheaper than it was 10 years ago. And I think that's why uh, when I was public council, we, we helped jumpstart solar in the state by uh, incorporating the development of solar. In some of the settlements that that I was involved in, in the time frame from 2014 through uh, 2020, you know, thankfully they, we convinced the Public Service Commission to move in that direction. Since then, they have continued to approve some of the solar generation by the by the investor-owned utilities. I think at some point the legislature is going to have to decide, does it want to help support more of the development of rooftop solar from a customer standpoint, or do they want to leave it in the hands of the investor-owned utilities? Uh, And quite frankly, I would hope that, you know, from my old position of representing the uh, consuming public, is that they would make it an even playing field, because I think that would be a win-win-win for everybody. Uh, It wouldn't take money away from the utilities, but it would give the individual customer, say a homeowner, the opportunity to put his or her own solar on their house and recoup their investment. And I think that's what customers are looking for. They're not necessarily looking to make money. They'd like to recoup their investments and be able to generate their own electricity.
0: Well, former public counsel J.R. Kelly, good to speak with you. Thanks.
3: Yes, ma'am. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: And still to come, your calls and tweets. How important is renewable energy to you? That's next on the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup, and happy Earth Day, everybody. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. In
1: Miami, I'm Tom Hudson. Florida Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed announced the first state goals for renewable energy this week. The target is to have all the electricity in Florida generated by renewable energy by 2050. But our office has no power to enforce that transition. Three zero five nine nine five eighteen hundred to hear from you about the transition to renewable power. Three zero at three zero five nine nine five eighteen hundred at Florida Roundup on Twitter. Let's begin in Homestead in South Florida with Kirk. Kirk, go ahead.
4: Yeah, hi. Appreciate the uh, the opportunity to chat briefly. Yeah, we have we have a lot more than just solar, and and obviously we're, we we have wind that doesn't get utilized effectively either. But you know, there's waste energy technology. There's a bunch of different technologies, and the, the fellow before Mr. Kelly, uh, he spoke true—you know—true to the fact that it needs to have a change at the at the commission level. And Miss Freed, of course, uh, you know I, that the conversation is being been had for twenty, thirty, forty years. The the will to do it is uh, unfortunately being stymied at multiple areas within our community. So. That's really the the crux of it is we need bold leadership, but it doesn't have to be that bold. it's economic sense and jobs and those kind of conversations need to be had at the local level with input from the people that you know that that can to talk on the issue and and, and advocate appropriately.
1: Kirk, we appreciate the comments there from Homestead. We'll see if this timeline that was announced this week, the first significant, the first specific timeline for Florida in this transition to renewable energy works.
0: William in Fort Lauderdale. Hey, William, happy Friday, happy Earth Day. What are your thoughts?
4: Um, unfortunately, I have to
5: say that uh, Commissioner Freed's plan is fundamentally impossible from a sheer perspective of math and um, mm-hmm. No country or state-sized region on the planet has been able to completely go renewables. Um, in, In particular, the only countries that have been able to do it in any kind of a reasonable time frame have been with nuclear, hydro, or geothermal. France built 58 nuclear reactors in 15 years, and today has consistently, year to year, the cleanest energy on their electrical
0: grid in continental Europe. Thanks for that. You know, William, uh, this question comes up a lot. You know, uh, nuclear power, uh, the energy produced by the power plants is renewable, but the fuel that's required is not renewable. Uh, A future energy mix, when you talk to uh, experts on this, uh, they, they talk about the need to have lots of pieces of the pie. So, it's impossible to predict the future, but as we follow the story, we'll be uh, taking into account all of those different factors you brought up. Thanks for the call.
1: Let's hear from Richard in Miami. Go ahead, Richard. You're on the radio.
6: Yes, hi. Um,
5: two things. One is that, you know, I have very little concern for the well-being of of the of FPL or the utility companies. I don't have any doubt that they're going to continue to do business and do fine. But the priority should really be the public and the taxpaying public and the environment. Um, And so also, if you look at other states in the U.S., we're so far behind, and yet we're in an incredibly sunny place. And that's because of obstacles that have been put up by the utility companies and the elected officials and the commission that are influenced by the utility companies. So I hope that changes. Because the technology is there, it's getting better very fast, and our goal should be to not be reliant on fossil fuels. Thank you.
0: Richard, thanks for those thoughts on this Earth Day.
1: Well, a week after rejecting dozens of proposed math textbooks for Florida students, the State Board of Education provided some examples of what it says are lessons that do not meet Florida education standards. Fifty-four math books submitted to the department for approval to be used in classrooms were denied. In a press release, the department said the books were not initially approved because they contained prohibited topics, including critical race theory, or were not consistent with state standards.
0: At a news conference in Jacksonville on Monday, Governor Ron DeSantis said some of the books also contain what the department calls the unsolicited edition of social-emotional learning in mathematics.
5: Math is about getting the right answer. And we want kids to learn to think so they get the right answer. It's not about how you feel about the problem or to introduce some of these other things. It's there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And we want all our students getting the right answer.
0: Now, on Thursday, after being asked for examples, uh, the department did release samples of the rejected material. One word problem begins with this quote, what, me racist? Another includes a bar graph titled, quote, measuring racial, racial prejudice by political affiliation, end quote. A third example released by the state is a math lesson with the goal of having students build proficiency with social awareness as they practice empathizing with classmates.
1: as we talk about math and state standards and textbooks in public schools in Florida. 305-995-1800. We love to hear from parents, from teachers, perhaps from uh, students on a lunch break this Friday. 305-995-1800 at Florida Roundup on Twitter. Anna Ceballos is with us now, Miami Herald policy and politics reporter in Tallahassee. Welcome back, Anna. So how unusual is the action taken by the Department of Education to reject so many textbooks?
7: Hi, yes, uh, good to be here. Uh, so one thing to keep in mind is that the state has a textbook adoption cycle that rotates three subjects every six years. And the process is really not new. And books get rejected all the time. But what was unusual this time was what the Department of Education said was a pretty high rate of rejections. They said that they rejected about 41% of the books uh, that were submitted by publishers that eventually are adopted into a state-approved list that school districts ultimately have a say on whether or not they will adopt. But we it's really unclear. I've asked personally for uh, rates, rejection rates from previous years um, to see how they compare. Uh, we haven't really heard back from the department as to, You know, we know that this is the highest, but like by what comparison, Mm -hmm. we don't really know yet. But what was unusual and many noted was, you know, that it was pretty racially divisive concepts that they were targeting in math books where people usually associate math textbooks with numbers and just problems.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because the department said the material was rejected because it failed to meet state standards or contained prohibited material. That was in the news release that the department had, uh, on Friday last week. So do we know how many textbooks were rejected for not meeting the state standards, the new state standards, not the prohibited material exemption, but just the state standard, um, issue?
7: Right. I mean, it, the, the initial press release that was released, of, uh, I believe it was Friday. So exactly a week ago, did provide a breakdown of exactly which books were the ones that were violating, uh, Standards based on Common Core, based on critical, what they call like critical race theory, based on social emotional learning. But they're, without examples, it's really unclear, right, what, what what exactly would be a violation of the standard because right. they're not really releasing all the details and about exactly what was the violation of the
1: standard. And Florida's no longer on uh, Common Core standards. The Florida state standards have been. Uh have been adopted that are exclusive to Florida. Was What about the prohibited material uh, category? What does the state consider prohibited material for math books?
7: I mean, I wish we knew, right? I mean, that, that's kind of been the whole story this last week. There's been a lot of buzz talking about what exactly does the state mean. You have to keep in mind that a lot of Florida school districts are currently trying to buy the math textbooks that are for their school year, and for their classroom, and they're wondering themselves. We talked to a few of them on Monday after, you know, the weekend news dropped and there was really a lack of information or detail about what exactly was the content that was found objectionable, and they themselves didn't really have a lot of information. And some of these school districts had already adopted textbooks that were not in the state approved list, so they were wondering, well, exactly what's going to happen with with the books now, right? Like do we have to revisit this? Is it okay for us to just keep them on board because maybe right. they it was a broad objection, but maybe our books don't really have that. So w- without a lack of detail, it's really difficult to to discern what exactly is objectionable according to state
1: One of the descriptions that has been given is uh, the idea that critical race theory uh, has been included in some of these math textbooks, at least according to the Department of Education. Lawmakers passed a law this year that bans teaching of material that makes students feel, quote, guilt, anguish or other forms of psychological distress. That's in the law or in the in the bill that has been approved by the legislature onto its way to the uh, uh, desk of the governor. Is this law? Or uh, this new law, soon to be expected law, being used here by the Department of Education?
7: So that specific bill has not been signed yet. I believe uh, the governor was sent that bill this morning. So it could, he's very much expected to sign it. So this is something that teachers are going to have to keep in mind, right? And now it's something that they have to keep in mind even in subjects like math. Now that the State Department of Education is raising concerns about, you know, concepts of quote unquote critical race theory, even though we don't know if they're actually talking about the legal academic concept that you know critical race theory is. Um, it could be more subjective. It could be more of you know the influence of um, critical race theory of how Republicans do it. So a lot of this concern is coming, you know, from from teachers and from some educators who have said, you know, a lot of this is going to fall on teachers and how they deliver instruction based on the legislation that the legislature approved just as earlier this year. So I guess there was a lot of questions, right? And now with math textbooks coming into question and the, the content, that kind of puts an extra layer of complication yeah. for how teachers might be thinking about the instruction to certain subjects.
1: Anna. there was one uh, education publishing company that did get its textbooks approved for uh, kindergarten through fifth grade math instruction here in Florida, a company called Accelerate Learning out of Houston, Texas. Uh, what do we know about that company? And what do we know about the material that uh, got the seal of approval from the DOE?
7: So that is a fairly, I believe it's a fairly mean company. Uh, and you're right, there was one one publisher who pretty much uh Got a hold of the K 5 textbook uh, selection. And um, I honestly don't, I haven't done reporting myself, but there is um, information out there. I believe the Tallahassee Democrat did a pretty extensive uh, story on who this specific um, publisher is and their background. And they did have ties, for example, to the Republican governor in Virginia, who I believe the parent company was the owner of this specific. Um, uh, uh, this publisher.
1: Yeah, uh, Glenn Yunkin, who was the CEO of this company before he ran for office uh, successfully in Virginia for the governor's race there. Anna Ceballos, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us today. Much appreciated. Of
0: course.
1: Thank you. You are listening to the Florida Roundup here on Florida Public Radio.
0: We're talking about the state rejecting dozens of math textbooks because educators claimed or education officials claimed they had objectionable passages related to race and other topics they felt were not approved for Florida standards. We're pleased to welcome a national expert, Derek W. Black. Black is an author and professor of law at the University of South Carolina and an expert on education, law and policy. He's also the author of Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. Professor Black, welcome to the Florida Roundup.
8: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So I want to begin by asking you, what's your reaction to the examples the state released from these textbooks that they found unacceptable?
8: My reaction is that that is the most wide-reaching concept of of critical race theory that one could, could possibly imagine. You know, I was reading some of the uh, investigative reporting that folks there in Florida had done, and, and one of the math books had um, biographies of a couple of black mathematicians and and at least the investigative reporters said, look, I think this is really the only thing we can find in this book that um, speaks about race. So if, if at this point in time, uh, acknowledging the existence of black mathematicians and and putting their biographies in a math textbook is critical race theory. I, I don't know how we can publish a book that even has persons of color in it without, it being accused of being critical race theory. So it's quite staggering if, if that is all that they could find objectionable in, in books like that.
0: Now, the Department of Education also cited examples of social emotional learning in the books that they didn't like. You tweeted out that the state seems to be, in your view, conflating critical race theory, a law school topic with social emotional learning. Can you elaborate on that?
8: Yeah, well, you know, I I only get to be right so often. And I was right on that, you know, because there were so many books that were rejected. I just couldn't imagine how it was that critical race theory was uh, the explanation for that. So I had seen there was reference to socio-emotional learning in, in some of the in the initial paperwork from the State Department. And I thought, well, they must just be treating social emotional learning as being critical race theory. And there has been a lot of chatter i guess in, in in culture that that suggests that um you know social emotional learning is is about promoting some racial view of the world or racial essentialism but when you look at the textbook again looking at this investigative reporting there in florida you know there there are things in there telling the students to uh, be nice to one another uh, to think about how they how their um, actions may affect others it's just being aware of the people around you now people might say why is that in the math um textbook and and what we find and what studies are showing is that these basic core values really really need to be reinforced across the curriculum you 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 should be nice not just in civics class you should be nice in math class um and you should engage in teamwork not just in social studies but also in in math and english and art and all of these and that creates a better environment for where all students um Uh, will achieve better so you know Governor DeSantis more more recent comments suggesting that we just need to know the right answer I think it's kind of missing the point that you know public school is not just about filling in bubbles ABCD on standardized test scores it's about developing values and those values have to reach across the entirety of the curriculum and there's absolutely nothing wrong in, in my opinion with with telling students uh, in their math textbooks to be nice to one another, engage in, in, in good teamwork. But apparently, again, the bar uh, is so low for critical race theory and social-emotional learning that even that type of material is apparently problematic at the state board.
0: We're going to continue discussing this after the break. Our guest is professor and author Derek Black, It's 305-995-1800. What do you think about the state rejecting dozens of math textbooks? And what are your questions about this? Your calls, your tweets after the break. It's 305-995-1800. Or let us know what's on your mind on Twitter. Get in touch there at Florida Roundup. This is the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to the Florida Roundup here on Florida Public Radio. Thanks for supporting public broadcasting in your community. I'm Tom Hudson in Miami.
0: I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Your call's in a moment, 305-995-1800, as we continue with Derek Black, author and professor of law at the University of South Carolina, uh, following this flap over the rejection of dozens of math textbooks in Florida. So, Professor Black, uh, you have uh, spoken out about this, saying that uh, Florida rejecting these textbooks could have wider ramifications for other subjects in Florida and even beyond the state line here. Can you explain what you mean by that? Hey, Professor Black, go ahead.
8: Oh, sorry, I had my mute on. Um, no problem. First, I want to I wanted to say that um, you know I wanted to give a shout out to the great reporting that, that you guys were doing before I came on. It was really digging into the ambiguity and the lack of uh, of information here, and that lack of information is is not the only problem, but it's a huge problem because if you're yeah, I mean
0: you 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 cited an example from one of the textbooks. I want to just be clear uh, that you didn't think was offensive at all. It, it wasn't one of the ones the state released. But please continue.
8: Yeah. So the problem here is that if you're in a multimillion dollar business of producing books, you need to know what the rules are. You know, whether you like the rules or you don't like the rules, you need clarity as to what gets a book approved and what gets a book not approved in the state of Florida. And when the state of Florida begins rejecting books on without giving evidence, uh, without being crystal clear about that, that shit sends shockwaves throughout the publishing industry. And so it's not just going to be your math book that you're worried about. You thought you were completely safe on your math book, maybe, uh, because you told kids to be nice. But if you tell kids to be nice in their, in their American government uh, simulations, is, is that a violation of, of the standards in Florida? So if I was a book publisher, I would be worried about all of my books, not just my math books, because um, as the reporting was saying earlier, there's a cycle. All these books are going to go through it over, I think they said, a six-year period, and um, if this continues, that that means that, um, you know, your social studies, your English language arts, all these are at risk in in Florida, but you also have to have the concern outside of Florida, which I've talked about, um, you texas has has had a pretty aggressive um, state board and, and book approval process there in the past they also have uh, an anti-critical race theory bill there and texas buys an enormous share of the nation's uh, textbooks that whatever texas does uh, good or bad tends to to lead the way because these massive book publishers want books that texas is going to adopt and then once texas adopts them then they'll just sell that same book elsewhere and they're not necessarily adapting books that are unique Mm. for each and every state and so when you have a state such as florida which is not as large as texas but does consume a a good chunk of books uh, when you have them shrinking uh the list of approved books the effect can be that it also shrinks the availability of books elsewhere. Yeah, Professor Black, it's Tom Hudson. Interesting perspective
1: there about kind of market economics and dynamics may be at play here uh, uh, after these decisions are made. We're going to take some calls, uh, Professor, to hear from Floridians. Beginning in the panhandle, Randy is listening in Panama City. Go ahead, Randy. You're on the radio.
5: Yeah, I'd just like to say uh, I've been in the aerospace business for 50 years, and it's really a incumbent upon the performance of the individual into the industry to understand math and science and not necessarily uh, put that in the context of a social program. So historically over the years, there have been textbooks that have left out particular uh, science parts and have not been as criticized as much as what we're listening to today. And it's kind of interesting on the epic rise of theories, social, social theories, why all of a sudden these books are being criticized. I mean, does it belong there? In my belief? No, it has nothing to do with math and science, and it won't get you promoted in the industry. So that's what I wanted to say about
1: that. Randy, we appreciate hearing from you in the panhandle. Let's hear from Martin in Gainesville on line four. Martin, thanks for listening and calling. You're on the radio now.
5: I'd like to double down on Randy's comment. Math class is about learning the numbers, learning the proper techniques. I'm fairly certain I heard at the beginning of the change of topic on this segment that uh, there was a lesson titled, Am I a Racist in a Math Class? And examples of using race analysis in math classes. That's for sociology. And if you understand how to manipulate your math equations and understand statistical analysis, then you can bring those things to bear on the other topics that utilize math as part of their basic underpinnings. But to meld those, honestly, for the professor to suggest that social-emotional learning is not part of CRT, it's ridiculous. I'm, I'm sorry. It's, <coughs> it's too much. Martin, math is math. Don't mix them.
1: Martin, we hear you from Gainesville. Professor Black, uh, would you like to respond?
8: I would disrespectfully say that there's there's no way that social emotional learning is uh, critical race theory. You know, parents have been trying as best they could for centuries uh, to teach kids how to be nice to their brothers and their sisters and their cousins and, and, and their aunts and uncles uh, at Thanksgiving dinner. And ultimately, when we talk about social emotional learning, that's what we're talking about. And that was around a long time before critical race theory. Now, is social emotional uh, learning uh, sort of a an intentional uh, pedagogical goal that is more recent. Yes, that's true, but it's it's not critical race theory or anything close to it.
0: And you're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Robert on the line in Miami. Hey, Robert.
6: Hi. Right. Okay, what I'd are your like thoughts? To, okay. Um, when kids come to this country, and there's a lot more of different kids of race, Color and creed here now than there used to be 50 years ago when the first books of math and all that were in, were published. Now we have to be more inclusive. Now it, also, if you take away different perspectives and you know a more empathetic look at the classroom through math through any subject, um, you dumb kids down. And in order to survive in today's world, you need to develop empathy, and that's the only way to do it: to include the social and emotional training in everything, because we are a mixed culture now. We're not an all-white culture anymore, and we need to consider and show empathy in everything we do to encourage everyone to be part of America. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Robert. Uh, Professor Black, you know, when you talk to educators about this topic, they tend to echo Robert's remarks saying that They try to teach cross-curriculum and include social-emotional learning in different ways, in different subjects, as part of educating a a well-rounded individual. That seems to be the more current thinking in the educational world. Am I correct in, in describing it that way?
8: I think that, that's, that's correct. And, and it's true at whatever level of, of education you're at, you know, I'm at the college level and there's a lot of students who just want to know, you know, what's on the exam, what's on the exam. And I'm saying, I'm here to teach you a lot more than what's on the exam. There's some things that are testable and there's other skills that are crucial to serving your clients. And those aren't going to be on the exam because they're not testable. And so I think, uh, you know, sort of teaching these these broader civics and, and social points are something that we do at all levels of the curriculum and hopefully in all of our classes.
1: Let's uh, try to squeeze in one more phone call from North Miami Beach. Mario has been listening in on line five. Go ahead, Mario.
9: Hi, uh, I'm Dr. Rube here. I'm a pediatrician and a pediatric pulmonary for 30 years in the in the area. But I've seen a lot of kids and my kids, myself, uh, taking them to schools and everything. And myself, I went part of the public school system I really enjoyed all the books that I had in in school and and all my life, and I never uh, felt that nothing was interpreted as social or critical thinking or critical racial thinking. You know, I I concentrate more on that the books themselves have – been proofread to make sure that they have no mistakes as far as math is concerned or science is concerned and the facts are are, are, are correct are are, are evidence based and they've been tried on different schools and different kids so that they work to teach the kids. To, to learn how to add or, or, or subtract or algebra or trigonometry, et cetera. And that's what we should really concentrate. The books are going to be worthy of the children to, to study. And the other thing is we should not be censoring books. We should be promoting books. And censoring can can lead to almost McCarthyism in, 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 in the school system, And and that's very dangerous. And I think we should teach kids to be freedom, to be able to speak, to be able to talk about their concerns, and and encourage these this healthy social discussions that we're having here and i i thank npr for this thank uh,
1: you mario thank you for listening and for uh, participating in the conversation here on the florida roundup dr black uh, i'll say as a parent of two public school students it's remarkable about how the conversation has moved from why don't they teach math the way i learned it as a parent and now moving into these uh these other
8: very politicized issues Yeah, well, I I would say, we haven't talked about Common Core yet, but I was discussing this with a colleague yesterday. Um, For those out there who say there's just one math and two plus two equals two and two (laughs) times 10 (laughs) equals 20, that's true. And what I, I wonder about, well, my point would be Common Core curriculum overlaps with whatever the old way we used to learn math, um, 90%. There's not a difference really between common core curriculum math and math other than some techniques for making it easier for students to get the right answer. Now there are some different ordering of when you learn a thing, you know, seventh grade. So I find that part curious too, is that, you know, what is it that's the common core curriculum that isn't real math that somehow is a huge problem here, which goes back to my, my overarching theme which is there's just an incredible witch hunt going on here uh, at least as best i can tell with evidence i have which is you know searching for the man who wasn't there or searching for the critical race theory that wasn't there and just trying to to find it uh somewhere constantly and we'll, we'll
0: have to leave it on that note as we are out of time but a great discussion professor black thank you so much Thank you. And thanks for listening to the Florida Roundup. Heather Schatz, Natu Choi, and Catherine Hobbs, all producers.
1: WLRN's Director of Radio Operations and the program's Technical Director is Peter Meritz. Engineering help each and every week from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Josh Torres. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music is provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Libos. More at com. Thanks for supporting Public Radio. I'm Tom Hudson.
0: And I'm Melissa Ross. Have a great weekend.